This is the Fast Five Podcast, presented by Blaze Fields and Sam Sinclair. Hello and welcome to the Fast Five Podcast, the fastest five minutes in sports, hosted by Blaze Fields and Sam Sinclair. We're back again with another episode to talk about all the hottest stories in sports. We got Jacob DeGrom. We got the NBA Finals. We got Dame Dalla himself that we're going to be talking about over the course of this next 25 to 30 minutes. But let's start with by far the biggest story in the sports world, the conclusion of Game 5 of the NBA Finals. All right, five minutes are on the clock. They say a series doesn't start until the away team wins a game. Well, the Milwaukee Bucks made it a series Saturday after shocking the Suns in their newly named Footprint Arena, 123-119. to Sam, the Bucks were down 2-0 and looked dead in the water, and now we're up 3-2 with all the momentum. What or who was the biggest X-factor in this Bucks win? I mean, it's really hard to pinpoint one exact player as to who's been the turning point so far. I think this whole Milwaukee supporting cast has performed better in these past couple games. But if I had to pin it down to one person, I'd say Drew Holiday. Because not only has he picked up his scoring a little bit the past couple games, he's also showed why he's one of the best defenders on the perimeter in this league today. He's held Chris Paul to very bad performances the last couple games. I think he had 10 last game and 11 the game before that. He's just completely eliminated Paul's production from the past couple games, and that in itself has been huge. And since players like him, Middleton, and even Pat Connaughton, who's really surprised me this series, are knocking down their shots, this Bucks team just looks unstoppable. They're scoring it well. They're playing great defense. They're just playing great all-around basketball right now. Yeah, and I think Drew Holiday really has, has come into his own and is putting up one of the best defensive finals performances in recent history. Obviously, his defense is not as good as some of the teams in the 80s and the 90s where they actually got to play defense, but what he's doing against superstar players who are used to getting their own shot is absolutely incredible. I mean, picking up Chris Paul 90 feet away from the basket and sticking with him almost all game is absolutely incredible and is a great adjustment to keep the, the Suns from getting into their pick and roll offense. But I think that Drew Holiday's offense has unlocked what I think is the biggest X factor for this Bucks team. And that is Giannis, the facilitator. The, the Bucks offense is at its absolute peak and almost unstoppable when Giannis doesn't have to be aggressive. Instead of having to put his head down and drop 40 points you know, run through the brick wall that is the Suns' defense, uh, Giannis got to take it easy this game and focus on just creating good offense. Yes, he, he put up 32, which is an incredible number, but I think the biggest reason for this Bucks win was the six assists he had, and he probably would have 20 if points off a screen would count because he was setting screens all game for Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, uh, Pat Connaughton, and getting them wide-open shots. I mean, Giannis the aggressor is fun to watch. That's the guy who won MVP and puts up incredible scoring performances in the paint. But Giannis the facilitator is the type of player that wins a championship. That's the type of guy who can do it all. And it's something we have not seen out of Antetokounmpo all that often. Um, so Sam, the Suns are down 3-2. 
They have to win game six and they have to win game seven. Do you think that the Suns have a chance at pulling off the two in a row? Or do you think it's inevitable that the Bucks come away with a championship? I think they've definitely got a chance, but to say they've got a very good chance, I wouldn't agree. They have to get Chris Paul going. He is what runs this offense. You can talk about Devin Booker all you want, but he's not even close to the facilitator that Paul is. And then you just have to get other guys going. Like DeAndre Ayton, he's shown in this in these playoffs that he can be an offensive focal point, but he's really fizzled out in this series. Uh, Mikal Bridges, he's played great defense, but offensively he hasn't been much. Jay Crowder's been inconsistent. It's kind of like what I talked about with the Bucks at the beginning of the series. They just have to start making their shots. And this Phoenix team can play really good defense. They have the players that can go out and guard this Milwaukee's team's top options on the perimeter and in the paint, but they just haven't been able to stop this offensive onslaught that Milwaukee has put on them. So I think they have a chance because all the games have been close. But if I had to say who's going to come out winners of this series, I think it's a pretty obvious choice in the Milwaukee Bucks. They smell the blood in the water. They have all the momentum. And unless something drastic changes, I see Milwaukee finishing this out somewhat handedly. And it's, it's funny you talk about the shots falling because I feel like the shots did fall for the Suns. I mean, they shot 56% from the field, 68% from three. It's just the fact that they just didn't put enough shots up. I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, the rebounding was close. They didn't turn the ball over that much. It was just that the Bucks' offense is at its peak form. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if there's an offense that can handle is near as good the Bucks whenever they're on like this. You know, they're just so well-rounded. Anyways, that's five minutes. All right, Sam, let's load a second clip and talk about our next five-minute topic. In between games four and game five, NBA Twitter was ablaze after reports that the Trailblazers point guard Damian Lillard was preparing to request a trade. But before you go photoshopping Dame into a Nets or Lakers jersey, Dame came out later that evening to dispel any trade rumors but noted that he was disappointed with the team's current makeup, saying that it wasn't a championship team. Sam, do you think a Damian Lillard trade is imminent, or is he here to stay for the long haul? No, I wouldn't call a trade imminent here, because besides Lillard voicing his concern for this organization, he doesn't have a ton of leverage. He's under contract for the next three or four seasons with a large team option after that, and he's openly stayed committed to this Blazers franchise. Like you said, he's um, expressed concern and disappointment with the organization, but he has not requested a trade yet. He's clearly shown that he wants to win in Portland, so now it's just a matter of putting a winning team around him. The only problem I see here is that there's not a ton of paths for this Blazers team to improve on the scale that Lillard wants them to. They're consistently in the playoffs and have a good record every year, so they don't have high draft picks each year. They don't have a ton of valuable trade assets besides C.J. McCollum, who this team seems reluctant to trade anyway. So it's just it's a tough spot for this team because they're good now, but... In this current market in the NBA, there is not a lot of room for them to get better, and they just don't have the assets to get the kind of all-star caliber player that Lillard probably wants for this team. So, Blaze, I just want to know, do you think this Blazers team has met its peak, or do you think there's an open path for this team to get even better? I think that the uh, the Western Conference Finals run that they had two seasons ago... Um, where they uh, faced off against the Warriors, 
I think that was probably their peak. I mean, you just aren't going to get a better path to the playoffs than the one they got. And, of course, they had to face off against an absolute super team in the Warriors. But they made that series pretty competitive. And it was all without Yusuf Nurkic. But I think... I think that was just their that was their shot, you know. I think same as the Suns and the uh, Bucks this year, you know, a lot of teams they only get that one chance to make a deep playoff run, and I think the Trailblazers have already had theirs. There's too much talent in the Western Conference for them to exist as in their current state and make a deep playoff run. And you know, like you said, I I don't think Dame is is gonna get traded. He loves the city. He stated he's wants to retire in Portland, and he just wants a slightly better team. And I think that if they were to pull out a trade involving C.J. McCollum or Yusuf Nurkic, I think they could potentially make this team better. But it all depends on how they maximize what they have into making a better team. You know, I I'm not too sure what their cap situation is. I'm sure with paying Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum, and Nurkic, that it's probably not very good. Um, So I don't see them adding any free agents this season as if there is really any good free agents on the market uh, at the moment. But I don't know. I just think that this is a team that's kind of like the Pacers or the Pistons of way back when, where they're a perennial playoff team, and they have, they've had shots at making the finals, but it, it's just too late. It's too late. And I think Dame, if he wants to get his wish of getting a ring in Portland, well, it's not going to come in Portland. It's going to take a major shakeup, a major rebuild, or something for Portland to get a ring. And I just don't think they have it. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how Dame feels after this season because with their current roster, they might be a bottom four seed. And that's just not good enough. It's just not good enough. Uh, Sam, if in the event that Damian Lillard does get traded, I'm interested to see where you see him fitting. I think the better way to word that question is where do we see him not fitting? There's not a roster in today's NBA that couldn't use Lillard's skill set. He's a player that can run an offense by himself with the ball in his hands. He's a great shooter enough to play in an off-ball role. He doesn't offer a ton on defense, but he's just, he's a top, I consider him a top 10 offensive player in this league without a doubt. It's just a matter of his contract, which teams would be able to give up enough money and assets in a trade back to Portland. Acquiring Lillard would almost, I mean, it'd be ridiculous for what to give up. It'd have to be a mix of young players, prospects, all-star caliber players. Finding the right package would be really difficult for this Portland team if they're even looking at all. But if I had to pick one team that I see Lillard fitting on or he to get traded, I would have to go with Golden State. I think they I think it's interesting because you know they have Steph Curry at the point obviously, but I think in terms of assets the Warriors trump every other team out there. They have the Timberwolves pick with which they acquired. They have their own first round pick. They have young assets like Wiseman, Kelly Oubre, if they can get him to agree to a sign and trade deal. They have a mixture of everything teams want in a trade package. Young players, draft picks, you know, they're not gonna trade Draymond Green or Clay Thompson, obviously, so they don't have an all star player to trade. But just in terms of I think where Lillard would fit best, it's at the two guard alongside Steph Curry. You move Clay Thompson over to the three, 
keep Draymond Green at the four and then put whoever at center. And I think this is a team that immediately becomes one of the top two, maybe even the best in the Western Conference. Man, that'd be a sight to see. A little repeat on that Warriors dynasty. All right, that's five minutes. All right, so Sam, we've spent about 10 minutes discussing basketball. And while basketball is in its uh, twilight here this season, let's talk about baseball. The second half of the MLB season is over. So we're going to be doing a new segment, Sam, called Factor Crap. I'll say a prediction, Sam, and you tell me if it's factual or crap. All right, so Shohei Otani is the biggest story this season by far. Now, Roger Maris, back in the 1960s, set an American League record for home runs at 61. Sam, do you think that at the current pace he's going, do you think Shohei Otani will reach that record? If he can stay healthy, I don't see why not. He's shown that he's one of the best power hitters in today's league. And, you know, he's got 34 already, so he's on pace to. He definitely has the potential to. So barring an injury, I would definitely say it's possible. And this Angels team needs it. They're underperforming yet again. Their pitching sucks outside of Otani himself. Obviously, Mike's, Mike Trout is hurt, so he's not there to help. Anthony Rendon has been hurt and has underperformed. So he is the star of this team. So I wouldn't bet money that he'll reach 60 home runs, but I would bet that he has a pretty good chance on it. And I would also bet that if he did do it, this Angels team is in a spot where they're going to be in the playoffs. Wow, bold take. I'd like to point out that he is on pace for 63 home runs this season. All right. My next question, Jacob deGrom. At the halfway point, he has an ERA of 108, which is better than Gibson's record-setting 1.19. He has 146 strikeouts. Meanwhile, Nolan Ryan holds the record at 383. He has a 544 width, or yeah, 554 width, which Hilton Smith owns the record at 0.617 and a 14.3 Ks per 9, which is better than Shane Bieber's 14.1. So with Jacob deGrom set to break a bunch of records, do you think that he will keep pace and become one of the greatest pitchers, have one of the greatest pitching seasons of all time, or do you think he'll fall off in the second half? I think statistically he'll be there up with all those all-time greats, but it comes with a giant exclamation mark, and that is the injuries. deGrom has had multiple stints on the IL this season with things like forearm tightness, elbow injuries, but when he's on the field... He's the best pitcher in this league, I think, without a doubt. He overpowers you with a high-velocity fastball along with great spin on his breaking stuff. So if he's on the field, he's going to get strikeouts. He's going to keep his ERA very low. But I think if he does finish the season with these really good stats, everyone's going to appreciate it. But you also have to look at the fact that it's going to be probably in a smaller sample size compared to some of the guys you've mentioned. So do I think he'll keep pace? Yes, but do I think it'll mean as much with him missing so many games? I do not. All right. So the Yankees are 48 and 44 and three and a half games back of a playoff spot with criticism coming in from all sides, including ownership. Can this ultra talented roster take a playoff spot? Mm, this is interesting, but I'm going to have to go with no. They just haven't shown enough consistency offensively or from the pitching side that they're even good enough to deserve a playoff spot. Outside of Garrett Cole, who's even been suspected of cheating with sticky substances, they really don't have many good, consistent starting pitchers. Corey Kluber's been hurt. Montgomery's been fine. But new guys like Jamison Tyone have not. 
And offensively, they've underperformed compared to last season. They've had a lot of injuries and problems with COVID. But until I see these big bats like Giancarlo Stanton, Aaron Judge, and some guys come back from injury like Aaron Hicks and Clint Frazier and see all the pitching perform well, I don't think so. The bullpen's underperformed. Aralis Chapman has sucked this season. As a whole, this team has sucked this season. I think they need a front office shakeup. I think they need a roster shakeup. I think they need a lot of different things to change. All right, Sam, we got 39 seconds. I want to hear your second half World Series prediction. Oh, man, I haven't thought too much about this yet because there's so much talent on both sides this year. But if I had to guess, I would have to say, give me the Padres for the NL. They've been very good, and of course they're in that loaded NL West, but when you get to the playoffs and all three teams are in the playoffs, regular season records don't matter. I think they're the best all-around team in the MLB. And then for the AL side, love it or hate it, I got the Houston Astros. Yet again, they're just the most well-rounded team in the AL. Great starting pitching, great hitting, um, a lot of stars, and they've really turned it on as the best team in baseball, in my opinion. All right, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth, Samuel. I have Padres and Astros as well. So hopefully good will prevail over evil there, but we'll see. Anyways, that's five. All right, Sam, it's time to get into our football segment. While training camps are mere weeks away, free agent Richard Sherman will not be finding himself practicing along with a new mystery team as he was arrested uh, Friday night for uh, criminal trespassing in the second degree malicious mischief in the third degree, along with resisting arrest, driving under the influence, and reckless endangerment of roadway workers. The charges are all misdemeanors punishable by up to 50 days in jails, or gross misdemeanors published by up to one year. Sam, with so many charges weighing over Richard Sherman's head and his status in the NFL unknown, do you think this is the end for the former Legion of Boom star? I'd like to think not. Because, I mean, looking on the bright side, at least they're all misdemeanors, right? But I don't understand how you can plead guilty in this case. There's literally video evidence of him banging on his father-in-law's door. I don't know how you just dismiss a crashed car and not call that evidence. So I don't know what he's getting at by pleading not guilty. I think he just needs to bite the bullet here and get it over with. Because this league appreciates honesty. They appreciate those trying to better themselves after past instances like this like even my Cleveland Browns they signed Malik McDowell if you've heard of him really talented DT prospect a couple years ago got into some trouble has that viral video of him being arrested at a, a gas station screaming oh what my supervisor for about five minutes it's a really annoying and horrible video but still this league appreciates those who want to get back on the right track and if I think Sherman admits that he was wrong um, it starts to path back to the league easier for him I don't think fighting this by pleading not guilty and just going through these legal troubles are going to help him at all, especially at this later stage in his career as he gets into his late 30s. Yeah, and uh, he released a statement uh, Wednesday night, and uh, he expressed that he was deeply remorseful in the fact that he was going to reach out and get the mental and emotional health he needed. But I, I think that while most people have you know, sympathy for him in this case because of his mental and emotional health issues. Uh, I don't see a lot of teams willing to take a gamble on that. I think that, you know, he definitely has a shot at getting back to the NFL, but it's not going to be a multi-million dollar contract like he was set up to get, um, you know, either during the season as an injury replacement 
or before the season as just that last little glue guy that most teams were looking for. Um, if he comes back, it's going to be a minimum contract. We'll see how much playing time he gets. I mean, he's definitely still got it. He's definitely a player who can still play the cornerback position at a semi-elite or at least above average uh, level. But I, just that amount of baggage, it does not does not go well. I mean, look at look at what happened to Greg Hardy. While his charges were a lot more severe, he got another chance with the Cowboys, but it was a minimum contract. He didn't see a lot of playing time, and he ended up getting knocked out last Saturday as a member of the UFC. So we'll see what happens. And, you know, if, if Richard Sherman decides to go fighting career, I think that'd be pretty interesting, but I, I highly doubt that. Uh, it should be interesting to see what happens, where it goes from here. And honestly, I think it just depends on what the sentencing is, too. Because if he gets sentenced a year in jail, like the maximum punishment would be, I mean, you can kiss the NFL goodbye after spending a year in jail. You know, jail time, that's a big no-no for most NFL teams. I just don't see uh, anyone signing him if he spends time in jail. But who knows? He's rich. He's famous. He'll probably get off scot-free. But, Sam, if he does make it back to the league, where do you think he fits? First of all, Blaze, I just want to say I like your previous point there. I think it's scary just how some famous athletes and celebrity can basically just buy their way out of trouble, but it's not like we can do anything about that. But in terms of on the field, I think Sherman is best suited to a return with the San Francisco 49ers. You already said that he's still playing this position at a high level. Obviously, he's a five-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro. He's still got it. He graded out well at Pro Football Focus last year. This is a top-tier corner in the NFL, and like you said earlier, because of all this baggage he has, he's likely going to come back on a close-to-minimum contract. And I think that's really a good thing for any team that signs him, because he's an above-average player in this league, and if you can find that on a minimum salary, a front office has done its job. And look at other players around the league, like Alden Smith. He came back last year after being suspended multiple times by the league, and he was a good edge rusher for the Cowboys. Now he's with the Seahawks. Josh Gordon, he showed flashes, but never really never really performed. So there's really two different ways the story can end. The first being he gets in trouble, gets into too much trouble where he doesn't come back, or he is able to come back on a low contract and some team gets a steal of a player. So overall, I hate it for Richard Sherman. He's been such a good player for a long time, but he put himself in this situation. But if he can come out of it, I still think he has the potential to be a good player in this league. All right, that's five. And for our final story today, we're going to be talking about the Open Championship. While Colin Morikawa came away with the gold at Royal St. George's Golf Club in Sandwich, England, the real story was Bryson DeChambeau. Known for his big drives on the course, he was having some issues off the course after saying that his driver sucked and that the uh, driver face was not good and that he was playing on the razor's edge. This upset his driver manufacturer, Cobra, who compared his actions to that of a nine-year-old and claimed that he's never really been happy ever with his clubs and blamed it on the fact that he tried to swing it 200 miles an hour. Now, Samuel, uh, what do you think about Bryson DeChambeau's actions? Is he justified in blaming his driver manufacturer, or do you think he's acting like a bit of a nine-year-old? I think there's a fine line here, and that's there's a better way to complain about your driver than to just come out and say they suck. That's not professional. It doesn't look good in the sport of golf. 
And I really think it's become an underlying thing for DeChambeau. He's a great golfer. We can't question that. Everyone loves to watch him. He hits the ball harder than anybody I've ever seen on the golf course. But his off-the-field actions, his attitude, his at-times immaturity have really affected how many golf fans view him. So I think there's a better way, there was a better way for him to address this situation, maybe talk to his supplier in private, but to come out and publicly criticize a well-known company like Cobra, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense and it doesn't look good on Bryson. Yeah, and I mean, you look at what driving is in general. It's the longest club with the least amount of loft and it swung the fastest. That's already difficult. But the way Bryson sets up his driver is for maximum distance. So if the accuracy isn't really there, especially on a Lynx golf course with major rough, I mean, you have to adjust. And Bryson just quite simply did not adjust. You know, at best, DeChambeau saying his driver sucks is is unprofessional. And at worst, it shows a lack of appreciation for the work that the people at Cobra invest in making his gear. He's such an experimental player who asks so much out of his equipment and to just be like, yeah, it sucks. I mean, it really is his fault because it's set up to his exact liking and his exact specifications. You know, and for him, the way he's acted, not only about this, but with his rivalry with Brooks Kepka, a rivalry which he's losing not only on the golf course, but off the golf course on Twitter. It's just sad because this is this is a generational talent in terms of pure power and he just looks like an idiot. He just looks unprofessional and, and, and really like a baby. Anyway, Sam, there was a golf match that did happen uh, in spite of all the media circus around Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, what did you see out on the links at Royal St. George? How about the obvious? The winner himself, Colin Morikawa. He's now a five-time PGA Tour winner, and he also became the first player ever to win two different majors on the same attempt. He's doing what a lot of the all-time greats have done at a really young age. So I think he's really solidifying himself as one of the best golfers in the world. But other than that, there were some good performers and some bad performers. Jordan Spieth, how about his performance? He finished in second. You know, this is a guy that took a break, really, from the national spotlight. Now he's back up there. So this is a good wake-up call that reestablishes him as one of the better golfers in the world. And then, of course, you had your bad performances. Phil Mickelson, I think it's about time for him to join the senior tour. He was cut after the first round, looked pretty bad. He's he's looking like my dad does now, too old to really perform at a high level. And then Patrick Cantley, the world's seventh-ranked golfer, he was also cut after the second second round on Friday. So there were some good performers, bad performers. I think it was a great, really a great open to watch. There was just so many storylines. And I'm talking about the storylines on the course, obviously. DeChambeau just was icing on the cake. But it was entertaining, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, hats off to Colin. I mean, the kid's only 22, and he's already won so many majors. This is a guy who you look at, and he's still got about an 18-year career left on him, and he's already accomplished so much. I mean, he might be a guy that he might... He might turn into a top 10 golfer of all time if he keeps it up. So I'm very excited to see how his career goes. It's nice to see Spieth back, especially after his terrible performances after his Masters choke a few years back. Hopefully he can win one last major uh, as he, you know, sort of enters the twilight of his career. And, you know, just an exciting time for golf. Uh, That's five minutes. 
All right, Sam, we're into our quick hitters portion of the uh, the broadcast here. Uh, Samuel, little new interesting breaking news is Peyton and Eli Manning will be hosting a alternate broadcast of Monday Night Football, which will be more focused on them and also include current and former NFL players and even some celebrities, Sam. So you hyped for this? Are you hyped for uh, the uh, Manning Brothers takeover? Oh, of course I am. This is news to me. I hadn't even heard this headline until you just mentioned it to me a couple minutes ago. I think it's awesome. This Monday Night Football crew, as much as I love some of the guys there, it's kind of underwhelming. They've got guys, or they had guys like Booger McFarland who were regularly laughed at and criticized. But what I really like about this new potential idea is kind of what I'm going to call the Tony Romo effect. When you put out there experienced football players, especially quarterbacks, who played the game for a long time, they see the game differently than the common spectator does. They're able to predict what's happening before the play, understand things like pre-snap motions and the way defenses are aligned. It really gives viewers a different perspective into how the game of football is played. And adding celebrities and even other NFL players to that is even better. I think it's going to be a nice mix of entertainment and really just a way for football fans to know more about the game, having... I wouldn't call Eli Manning an all-time great, but definitely Peyton Manning an all-time great, having two good quarterbacks announce the game. So I'm all for this idea. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be an interesting look, and I think that if they get, you know, really uh, great minds of football, you know, with their current and former NFL players, and even some entertaining personalities with some celebrities, I think it's a recipe for success. Anyway, we're about to hit the 30-minute mark, so uh, we'll uh, call this podcast good. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, follow us on the at Fast Five Pod page on Instagram. Uh, check us out on Spotify. Give us a follow if you want to keep in tune with new episodes. Uh, come out on a semi-regularly basis. Uh, should be one out after game six, hopefully. We'll see. Um, so yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to try to get this uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts soon enough. And uh, really, though, we appreciate your listenership. Uh, See ya.